I'm Sam Slade from Fun Calibre and you're listening to Investing on the Go. I'm here today with David Coombs, manager of Rathbone's Strategic Growth Portfolio. Hi, David. Hi. Um, so you've managed this fund for about 10 years now. What have been the high and low points of the past decade for you and what have you learned along the way? High points, low points is, is difficult. Um, you know, the, fund, the way we run the fund is that it's meant to produce consistent returns. So we're never shooting lights out, we're never kind of going through the floor. I mean, mm. you know, everything's been a tenuable market since the financial price of eight. It hasn't been. Taper tantrums, you know, mm-hmm. yield curve inversions. There's been lots of, of sort of market blips over mm. that period that have been, you know, challenging to get through. Um, the highlights have been to see the, the fund get through half a billion towards the last two or three years. It's mm-hmm. been a long slog, a lot of sort of um, presentations in hotels around the country trying to get people interested in this type of strategy. Mm. Uh, and finally, we seem to be in the sweet spot where multi-asset and target return and risk are much more in vogue than they probably were 10 years ago. Mm. So you've mentioned target returns there and risk. So this is a, a new type of fund where you actually think about risk first and then the returns that you can get from it. Is that correct? Not exactly. This fund um, has two targets that are mm. equally weighted, the risk and the return. So if I hit the risk but not the return, then that's not acceptable. And if mm-hmm. I hit the return and take too much risk, that's also not acceptable. So they are weighted 50-50 in terms of how I look at the funds okay. and probably equally importantly how I'm remunerated. Mm. <laughs> um, you split the portfolio into three buckets. There's liquidity, equity risk and diversifiers. Yes. Can you explain what you mean by each of those, please? Yeah, I mean, when, we target, when we're targeting risk, for example, we're looking at relative volatility but really we're talking about drawdown because that's what clients really get nervous about is when you have stress market conditions and your investments are going down so what we're trying to do is manage the downside mm-hmm. we think managing liquidity risk is a key part of that if not the most uh, key part of that mm-hmm. so the liquidity bucket um, contains asset classes that we know we can sell during those distressed market periods we don't look at average daily market liquidity we look mm-hmm. at liquidity during stressed events okay the l bucket is only investments that we have high conviction and confidence we could sell them during those market stressed events but also they will probably produce a positive return i.e they're negatively correlated what's in there mostly sovereign bonds okay. but double a rated credits and above as well mm-hmm. and cash of course okay and the equity risk is that shares in companies it's it's everything that I didn't just describe, I guess. It's, it's, it's clearly it's equities, that's mm-hmm. fairly obvious, but it's also credit, high yield, emerging market debt, okay. corporate bonds below, single A rated. Again, any investments which we think may be a liquid, mm. may have a high correlation to equities during those market stressed events. Because a lot of multi asset funds have lots of diversification in terms of asset mm. class and sectors. And they don't really stress test their portfolios. They just look at long-term correlations. We don't do that. We look at correlations and liquidity and downside risk during a, say, 20, 30, 40% collapse in equity markets. Okay, thank you. And in that equity risk section at the moment, you've got what looks like an eclectic mix of shares and holdings at the moment, at least at first glance. You've got the likes of Estee Lauder, the makeup company, LVMH, which is Louis Vuitton and Moet Champagne. Um, ASML, that's, it's not even a chip maker for phones or computers. It provides the bits for those chips, for those phones and yep. things. So is there a theme I can't see or how do you go about picking those particular holdings? Um, we're not thematic investors particularly. I don't sit there going, you know, I must have an investment in, you know, in makeup theme, for mm, example. Yeah. We are, we are an alter beauty as well, just to take that forward. 
I think um, what's really important is we have 40 or 50 companies in the portfolio and they're all weighted accordingly. There's no top 10. Okay. Uh, in strategic growth, they will typically be between 0.7 and 1% of the portfolio. That's mm-hmm. part of our risk discipline. So that's the first thing to say. Mm. Secondly, what would they have in common? They would have a management team that we feel has the culture that's appropriate, i.e. they're willing to be challenged. Okay. Um, we don't want CEOs who are huge personalities that aren't going to be challenged by their management team because mm. that's where you tend to have risk and poor allocation of capital. Mm-hmm. So the culture of an organisation, how they empower their senior managers is really important. So there'll be a strong culture, management culture within all of the companies we invest in. But probably the most important thing they'll have in common is that they put the customer at their priority of stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people talk about stakeholders in terms of shareholders, in terms of employees. We think the most important stakeholder is actually the customer, because if you don't get that right, mm-hmm. your employees will struggle, the shareholders will struggle, management will struggle. Okay, So it's really important that all those companies focus on the customer and what customer wants. So, for mm-hmm. example, Estee Lauder, as you used the example, yes. um, they are looking at reducing plastic use and moving towards glass because mm-hmm. they are seeing a huge shift in consumer behaviour. Mm. Okay, That's a company that clearly is up to the minute in terms of what their consumer wants and desires and is moving accordingly. Even if that's going to cost them money to do so, mm-hmm. they're taking a long-term approach. So customer focus, customer service, absolutely vital, whether it's a business-to-business or mm-hmm. it's a direct-to-consumer business. Thank you. And just going back briefly to the liquidity bucket, you hold some things in there called Treasury 0% T-bills yeah. that actually, we're talking in June at the moment, they expire next month. Yeah. So they're quite short-term. What are they exactly? So they're short-term government borrowing, like gilts, if you like, mm-hmm. but they're less than one year typically to mm-hmm. maturity. They're a way of us investing cash for a better return than cash mm-hmm. when, we want, when we're feeling that the world is a bit risky and mm-hmm. we want to hold more liquidity. You know, in, in, in strategic growth and some of our other funds, we have very high levels of liquidity at the moment, which reflects the risks of trade wars, political interventions, mm-hmm. and the other macro factors and Brexit that everyone's aware of. So we're running high levels of liquidity. But we don't want to just hold cash. Mm. So by holding treasury bills, which are government bonds effectively, we're not taking any bank risk or credit risk, okay. and we're maximising our risk return on cash, if you like. So when they do expire, would you simply go and get another one that expires in another three months? Yes, correct. Or maybe up to, depending on where rates are, they Mm. may be slightly longer. And sometimes you might buy a two-year gilt instead. It will really depend on the value of of where the best rate is for maturity based on our views. So we will have... UK sovereign bonds from say one month right up to two years as part of that mm. sort of alternative cash position when we want to have high levels of liquidity such as now. Okay, thank you. And in the diversifier bucket, um, there's just a small amount at the moment, just five percent. Um, perhaps you could explain why that is and what you've got in it. I see there's a, a something called an S&P 500 put. Could you yeah. perhaps explain that one? So the five percent really reflects just the nominal value of the investments, how much money we've got invested there. But actually, what the S&P put does at the moment, our position covers 20 percent of the equity risk. So its actual coverage of the portfolio is higher than five percent. Okay. So it's slightly misleading. Um, one of the the big advantages of scale, as the funds have got bigger, is allowed us to um, to enter into uh, more sophisticated ways of managing risk. And put options are a way. So an SP 500 put effectively, if you buy, say, a put at 
S&P at 2,500. Mm -hmm. If the S&P falls below 2,500, we can still sell at 2,500. Okay. So we isolate the losses below 2,500. Mm -hmm. What are the advantages? You have, again, an absolute number that you have 100% confidence that risk beyond that you are not exposed to. Mm -hmm. So you're not hoping, like a hedge fund, that they'll be uncorrelated. This is a guaranteed negative correlation to equity risk. It's a bit more expensive than other forms of insurance, but mm -hmm. the way to look at it, and the way to your investors look at it, we're buying insurance for the portfolio. Like all insurance, like house insurance, you hope to lose money on it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because <laughs> if, you if your house insurance investment pays off, you haven't got a house, it's just burnt down or flooded. Mm -hmm. okay? And it's the same with S&P puts. They work in exactly the same way. They isolate you from that risk. If we covered 100% the portfolio with those put options, yes. we would have no US equity risk at all. Right, okay. Now, we don't do that. We just, depending on, again, how we feel, last year we were 50%, mm -hmm. to at the moment we're 20%. Okay. And just going back to last year when we met, you were one of the few people who were still very positive about the US. The yes. market had risen quite a lot at that yes. point, was looking a little bit expensive. But you, um, I think you said that you thought it was probably going to be the best asset class in terms of returns, definitely over the next 10 years, but perhaps even over the next one, two or three yes. years as well. Is that still in your view? 100%, yes. I, um, I would dispute whether it's expensive, actually. Okay. I think if you compare the US market on a sectoral basis, mm -hmm. you know, technology is 1% of the UK market, it's nearly 20% of the US market. Often people aren't comparing like for like. Mm. And also, if I compare the valuation of US banks versus European banks, we're talking about completely different types of institutions with different qualities of management uh, and, and history. So. I think looking purely at a valuation on a P level between markets is, is fraught with danger and it's not something we look at, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I would argue the US equity market, I'm not arguing it's cheap, I'm arguing it's good value okay. in terms of the transparency of the future earnings. And yes, I am still a buyer, I still have a bias towards it. Uh, I, have, I have no doubt that will be the case in six months' time as well. Brilliant, thank you. You're welcome. If you'd like to listen to more of our podcasts, please subscribe to Fun Calibre. Please remember we've been discussing individual stocks to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or to sell. The fund may or may not still hold these stocks at the time of your listening. Mm -hmm.